Hello and welcome to another edition of the Professional Hypnotherapist Podcast. In today's podcast, we hear from Joe Griffin, one of Ireland's foremost eminent psychologists. And the subject matter is his co-authored book with Ivan Terrell on addiction. Stay tuned and you're in for a treat. Joe Griffin. Thank you so much for joining me today uh, on the Professional Hypnotherapist Podcast. Delighted to be here, Aidan. And today we're going to talk about your uh, co-authored book with uh, Ivan Terrell, which is this one, a very well-known book, a very, very, uh, a book that every therapist and indeed non-therapist should have in their library. Um, what was your inspiration, Joe, for uh, writing this book? Well, my, my inspiration was that the whole atmosphere and the whole theoretical world of addiction 20, 25 years ago was very depressing, very mm -hmm. full of foreboding. Addiction was a biological illness. You had it for life. You know, you yeah. were somehow born to be a damaged human being. And mm -hmm. I just found that very depressing. <laughs> and and yes. I, I, there wasn't any real basis for it. Because yeah. if we looked at the, the full field of data, people were recovering from addictions all the time. There was mass in there, in there, hundreds of thousands that were recovering from them. Yeah. The ones who were slow to recover were the ones who were going into full-time therapy and going into residential treatment centers at that time. They were recovering at a much slower rate than people who didn't never went into therapy, but who somehow found the resources within their relationships and their community to get on top of addiction. So... Mm -hmm. The, the field of therapy was hopelessly deterministic and depressed and really didn't reflect reality. Mm -hmm. It was almost, Joe, almost as though that, you know, if you had this addiction, as you say, you had it for life. Yes. You know. And, yeah. And the truth was people have always been and, all, and, and continue mm. to recover from addiction. Yeah. Yeah. So um, can you explain your, your central approach to overcoming addiction? And how it differs from what we heretofore were used to. Yes. Rather than seeing in, uh, addiction as something that you're genetically predisposed to get it, it was almost a certainty. It was a disease that was programmed in, into your genetic inheritance. Rather than seeing it that way, we know, for example, the way our genetic inheritance works, Aidan, is that Virtually all human behavior is about 50% genetically influenced and 50% learned. So yes, of course, there is a genetic contribution to addiction, but it doesn't mean that nature wants us to get addiction. So for example, some people may be genetically more predisposed to, to risk-taking than others, but they yeah. turn that predisposition into successful entrepreneurship mm -hmm. and become successful business people, whereas some other people will turn it into a gambling addiction and destroy their lives with it. But it's the yes. same genetic inheritance. So the genetic inheritance is not destiny. It's how we utilize it. And the key central idea here, Aidan, is this, is that the reason people become addicts is the same reason people develop mental illness. And the reason is quite simply, they cannot put together a life that works. They cannot get essential emotional needs met so they're they are suffering psychologically and emotionally and they turn to addiction as a form of medication to get away from the terrible feelings that they're having uh, of, of being useless and not being of loneliness and isolation and having no control and things on top of them and addiction is an attempt at self-medication 
Yeah. And you touched on it there, Joe, the whole area of human uh, needs. And yeah. you, you yourself with uh, Ivan Terrell formed the Human Givens Institute. And the, well, tell us about that. Well, we formed the, the Human Givens Institute about, about 20 years ago. And it, was, it, it we really felt that the whole field of psychotherapy at the time really was stuck in the past in theories that were no longer scientifically validated. And tools, for example, like hypnosis, which are perhaps the, the single most powerful psychotherapeutic tool in existence, was not a part of most treatments. Uh, and that appalled us. And so we felt, in fact, to be absolutely honest with you, my motivation was to get hypnotherapy into the treatment of mental illness in the NHS in Britain. And I knew no way we could go into the front door and say, we want to teach you how to use hypnosis. So they, they, were, they, they were terrified of it because they didn't understand it. So we had to rename it guided imagery and we had to build a therapeutic model around it. And the therapeutic model was human givens, that illnesses and, and mental disorders arise because people are not getting their needs met. Well, now that just, that's just logical, that's just logical. If you take any organism, like say a sunflower, and you plant it in the right area where it can draw the right nourishment from the soil, where it can get the right amount of sunlight, etc., it'll thrive. Mm -hmm. You put it into an environment where it can't get its needs met, it won't try. Yeah, and yeah. just that's true as a flower, it's true of a human being. Mm -hmm. fact, so the environment is important. Well, the environment is all important. In fact, there was a tremendous naturalistic experiment that occurred uh, in 1975, way back as far as that. And that was the end of the Vietnam War. I'm sure, do you know, I'm sure you're familiar with this. Absolutely, yeah. And there are tens of thousands heavily addicted to heroin. The American government paralyzed with fear. Oh, my God, we're bringing these terrible people home. They will take over the mafia. They, they will destroy our society. They were mm -hmm. terrified. Mm -hmm. So they monitored them for the next couple of years. And as you know, 80% of them give up heroin. Yeah. All theory books said it's not possible. You cannot give up heroin. You're a heroin addict for life. But they just yeah. give it up. And why did they give it up? They gave it up because they had a, an environment wherein their needs could be met. Loving families, supportive relationships, jobs they could go into, special programs for the GIs to go to university, special rates, etc. And the ones who didn't give it up were the ones who couldn't get their needs met. They had PTSD, they came from broken families, they had, they had other psychological problems. So it's just obviously true and borne out by the evidence that it's the environment holds the key to mental illness, holds the key to addiction. Now, there are the environment is one in three factors, Aidan. A toxic, an environment wherein you can't get your needs met will predispose, will, will trigger off addiction or depression or anxiety disorders. But the second factor is that a person may be suffering from some, from some form of damage that's preventing them from getting their needs met. Now, this could be a, that could be a damage to their brain, a car accident, it could be dementia. But when I worked in rehab, supervising the training of, of, of addiction counsellors, I often found that the damage was most often psychological. They were suffering either from undiagnosed bipolar disorder, which was surprisingly common, and the people were drinking to try and regulate their moods. They were suffering from untreated post-traumatic stress disorder. This could be from the results of car accidents. It could be from the results of uh, being bullied at work. It could be the result of being in a, an abusive relationship or, or, sexu or sexually attacked or whatever. But they were had a major trauma and the addiction was an attempt to cope with that. So, and in some cases, 
people were missing key life skills that prevented them getting on with their life. Now, they, these people, for example, might 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 be say uh, uh, have a neuro might be, might have a neuro a neur, as we now call it, a neurodivergent personality, but our brain organization. But very often that can be accompanied with certain deficits, say in social skills and being able to read people and being able to have the skills to form relationships. And that was their vulnerability to addiction. So we have to look at what is it is preventing these people from getting their needs met and remove those barriers of the right form of therapy. Now, when we get into specifically what's required for addiction, there, there's an additional component that's required, which hypnotherapists will be brilliant at. Get to that when you're ready. Right. Well, no, well, let's 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 go there, Joe, because in terms of, of uh, hypnotherapy and indeed, uh, you know, you, you mentioned that it was it was precisely because you knew the benefits of hypnotherapy that you wanted to get it into the NHS in the UK. So maybe you continue with, uh, with that th with that right. train, please. Right. <clears throat> to be able to help a person recover from addiction, we need a plan. And there's three elements mm -hmm. to the plan for it to work. One, 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 one of those elements is that we have to um, we have to be able to get help them remove the barriers to them getting their needs met, whether that is a lack of certain form of social skills, whether that is a form of trauma that needs treatment, whatever it might be. We have to uh, help them get treatment for bipolar disorder, but we have to re we have to remove the barrier. The second thing we have to do is we have to help them to identify high risk situations because. The desire for a cigarette can be triggered or a, a drink or whatever it might be, cocaine, can be triggered off so fast in the brain that you are overwhelmed by it. So we have to be able to anticipate these high-risk situations and go into them with raised consciousness and having a plan to deal with it. What happens if now if I go into the pub and I'm offered a drink? What am I going to do and they try, try to persuade me to have a drink? What's my plan? So we need a plan for high-risk situations. But the third element is where hypnotherapy comes in. The third element is this. A person who has an addictive habit has programmed a set of expectations into their brain about the joy and the good feelings and the euphoria that the addictive habit is going to give them, whether it is buying out, purchasing out of control, whether it is drinking, whether it is cocaine, whether it is cigarettes, doesn't matter, gambling, whatever it might be. But they have a set of expectations that this is going to give them great feelings. And these set of expectations are completely unrealistic because they are the result of what's called euphoric recall. That is, the addiction circuit in the brain edits our experiences and it cuts out all the bad side of the addictive habit. If we want to remember, you know, all the times when we went out and got drunk and we think about it and we talk about it with our friends, we only remember the laughter and the, and the crack we had and all the rest of it. We, we forget about the fact that we fell down into a bush on the way home and, and tore our best suit. We forget yes. about the fact that we went to kiss our child goodnight and vomited all over them. We, oh, we, we forget about the fact of waking up in the morning, trembling and shaking, can't remember what we did, praying to God that we haven't done something terrible or said something terrible is going to ruin the rest of our lives. All Indeed. that shame and bad stuff is, is cut out. Uh -huh. We just get the euphoric recall when we're thinking of it. And what hypnotherapy can do is we have to reverse those expectations. We have to program in pain expectations if we indulge in the addiction right. and, and great ex positive expectations if we stop doing it we have uh -huh. to reverse the expectations yes. and it's okay doing cognitive therapy talking about it 
but it doesn't get anywhere near the effectiveness of going into the imagination, going into the REM state, the brain's natural programming state, and programming in real powerful negative expectations. So can I give you an example of what I mean by Absolutely. that? Absolutely, yeah, please. Yeah. Let's say somebody wants to give up smoking. Now, smoking yeah. is an incredibly powerful addiction, and it really can destroy someone's life. I mean, we, it does it all the time. Tens of thousands of people die from it. Now, people have positive expectations associated with smoking, but in the hypnotic state, we can start to reprogram that. We could say, and language is going to be very important here because we don't want to say that somebody's going to get cancer because that would be that 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 would be anti-therapeutic. It would be wrong. But what we can say is, a lot of people who who smoke continually get cancer as a result of it. Now, I'd like you to imagine what could, not what will happen, what could have happened to you had you continued to smoke. Had you continued to smoke, you could have found yourself in the future in a hospital bed, seriously ill from the effects of smoking. Your life is in danger. You may have a terminal illness, maybe lung cancer, it could be heart disease. And your children, the people you love, are gathered around your bed. And they're there to say goodbye to you. And your children come over and they're hugging you and they're saying, please don't die, Dad. Please don't die. We don't want you to die, Dad. And you know there's nothing you can do about it. The cigarettes have packed you in. It's over. You love, the, as far as the children are concerned, you love the fags more than you love them. And you're never going to see them go to school. You're never going to see them get their first jobs. You're never going to be there to see them get married. And all those wonderful experiences that they wanted to share with you have been stolen off you by these cigarettes. So I want you to say no to smoking because that doesn't have to happen. It does not have to be that way. You can live for years, if not decades longer, once you quit smoking. And all these wonderful experiences can be yours. Waking up in the morning, taking a deep breath and feeling more alive because you're a non-smoker. Being able to think more clearly without your brain polluted. Having more energy and fitness. More self-esteem because most intelligent people, people like that, most intelligent people don't smoke anymore. Of course, you're an intelligent person. You wouldn't be here otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> and all that guilt about smoking. Yeah. Not start counting the tens of thousands of pounds you're going to save over the next number of years by being a non-smoker. So we reverse that conditioning. We say, if even the thought of a fact comes into your mind, I want you to immediately see yourself coughing and wheezing and mouthfuls of snot coming up and see yourself in that hospital bed dying and your children begging you to come home. And say, no, no to smoking. And if you do that in hypnosis, Aiden, isn't that's ten times more powerful? Yes, yes, there's an acceleration there. Oh yes, and it just becomes more emotionally real to them. You know, and I don't mind if I see tears coming down their eyes because I'm trying to save this person's life. Yes, of course. And, and just on, on that, um, Joe, with regard to you know, we all the importance of beliefs. And what we believe is almost like a wish fulfillment. And, uh, you know, I, I, I come back to um, I, I come back to that. What, what, what we actually believe actually happens. So what do you say to someone who there's a there's a there's a, a, a train of a, a school of thought out there? I want to call it that, you know, they say that, well, smoking isn't isn't an addiction. Well, of course, the word addiction is is, is an abstraction. And then we yes. have to unpack what, what we actually mean by it. And I never get into arguments about whether something is an addiction or not. You have, at the moment, a self-admittedly got a compulsive behavior that is interfering with the quality of your life and likely to do you immense damage in the future. 
Whether yeah. you want to call it a habit or an addiction, it's neither here nor there. I want to help you yeah. to get that control. Yeah. I, I yeah, that, that I, I like that because, you know, th- when you talk about comp- compulsive behavior, it, it gives it a different slant. Yeah. You know, again, and thank you for that. Now, on page 82, you mentioned that logic never cured addiction, but your emotions can. Yes, exactly that. Exactly that. Every person who's smoking a packet of fags a day knows they shouldn't smoke. They know all the reasons why they shouldn't smoke. Logically, they want to stop because the surveys show that most of them want to stop, but they can't. Mm-hmm. So, just piling logic on won't do it. And, and the main reason it won't do it is we have to understand how cravings are set off. That's one of the things we have to understand. Yeah. There's, there's a really powerful piece of knowledge around cravings. Because a lot of people are terrified to give up their drink or their excessive drinking or their cocaine or their cigarettes, whatever it might be. Because they think they're going to suffer terrible withdrawal symptoms. And the, and the, the really important piece of knowledge is you do not have to have severe withdrawal symptoms. They're completely controllable. All you have to do is have a mild piece of discomfort because withdrawal symptoms come in two stages. The first stage is a physiological uh, piece of discomfort. Now, this is mild. The strongest piece of physiological discomfort you can have for, as a withdrawal symptom is a hunger pack because without food, we die. And yet mm. nature does not allow you to get a lot of pain with a hunger pang because if food is not available to you, you have to have a clear head to go out and hunt for it and find it. You can't do that if you're consumed with emotional pain. Yeah. So yeah. we're not designed. We shouldn't be getting strong withdrawal symptoms, but we can get them. And it's because of this two-stage process. The first stage is just a feeling of discomfort. Like you get, oh, yeah, maybe I'd like a cup of tea. or something. That's mild. But the next stage is if you now indulge a fantasy about, oh, how I'd love to have a cigarette. Now, God, I'm really going to have a cigarette. That triggers off a massive dopamine release, which creates a really powerful craving, which is almost impossible to suppress. And even if you do suppress it once, the next time you indulge that fantasy, your willpower is eroded a bit more and a bit more, and you will inevitably go back. You cannot do it just through logic. You have to understand how to stop triggering off the withdrawal symptoms, the cravings. And you do that by, as soon as you get the feeling of discomfort, the bit of awareness in here, that you want a fag, or you'd like a, you'd like some cocaine, or you'd like a drink of alcohol, it's half past four, I usually have a drink at half past four, as the client said to me yesterday. Uh, as soon as you get that awareness coming come, comes into your body, you must immediately knock it on the head with negative imagery that you will have programmed into you, ideally in the hypnotherapy session. And you'll immediately see, if it's a cigarette, see yourself wheezing and coughing up snot and wheezing and not able to breathe and struggling for breath and your children crying and all the rest of it. And you just knock it on the head. The price of recovery is you must never allow a positive fantasy to go unchallenged. That's the price of recovery. Over time, those fantasies will come less and less and just wear out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All very valuable uh, information, Joanne. Thank you for that. Um, in terms of the work and the research you've done, I mean, it has been, uh, you know, groundbreaking work research that you have published. Indeed. Indeed. We have shown that the human given therapy, which is a brief solution-focused therapy, focused upon dir- directly solving the problems that are getting in the way of people having a life and using the most powerful tools available including guided imagery and using reason as well as, as we would in cognitive therapy. Yes. Using those tools, that you can help most people who are in distress in a handful of sessions. It doesn't have to be years of therapy. 
Yeah. It's yeah, just not practical yeah. anymore. There's so many people who are mentally ill. It's just not practical. And we've got people waiting six and nine months before their before their GP can send them to a therapist. It's just yeah. so wrong. Yeah, yeah. And we now have the evidence that antidepressants don't work. They don't work any better than placebo. And it's about one in three people get some benefit from them. That's not the answer. No, no, yeah. Um, in your book, I think you, you talk about the expectation fulfillment of dreams uh, uh, in that. Um, can you explain how that relates to addiction, or uh, if, if possible? Well, the reason why we dream is that in the course of every day, we have expectations. Now, expectations are not wishes like Freud would have said. An expectation is something that physiologically arouses you. You anticipate something is going to happen or you have a desire to do something. And either this thing doesn't happen, or you suppress the desire to do it. You want to hit your bot uh, boss a clatter in the face for his way he's disrespected you and, and, and marginalized your work. And you'd love to hit him. Of course you don't. Yeah. No. Drop and end up in jail. But that Indeed. <laughs> it's still inside your nervous system wanting to get out. Yeah. And if we allowed suppressed impulses to build up day after day, we would go insane. So nature mm -hmm. takes the brain offline in our sleep, in dream sleep, takes the brain offline, the body is paralyzed, and the suppressed impulses from waking are now acted out metaphorically, by pattern match. So why is mm -hmm. this waking reality? We act them out and they're switched off. Most of our dreams we don't even remember. Now, this pertains to addictions in two ways. If you suppress a desire for a cigarette, you may well have a dream, and you may remember it, that night where you smoke a cigar. But don't be bothered about it, because that is your brain getting rid of that addictive impulse, mm -hmm. filling it and then switching it off online. It's just getting clearing it out of the brain so it's yeah. not hanging around for you the next day as much strongly. That's one thing. The other thing is, as you, know, as you know, know, of course, Aiden, that we now have a scientific explanation for hypnosis, and it's getting people into the REM state. The REM state was the brain's originally used to program the fetus in this mother's womb with the templates for being human, how to, how to suck a breast, how to swallow, how to have templates for walking, templates for language, which all come out in their own time when they're due. And it's the brain's programming state. And through hypnosis, we can access that state. And that's why we can reprogram the expectations. Yeah. Positive with giving up the addiction, negative with continuing it. So because it, the expectation here you're dreaming about explains hypnosis, and it also explains it not to be rattled if we do have a dream in which we relapse. It's just the brain clearing out that impulse that you successfully suppress the previous days. Yeah. So you have to clap yeah. in the back and say, that's great. I'm just getting my brain getting rid of it. So, so we have, you know, we have inbuilt in us that, that mechanism uh, to reconcile something that is gone awry within us. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's... <clears throat> And all, it, all, it all came about through hot-bloodedness. Before yeah. we got hot-blooded, we had to wait for the sun to warm us up. We'd have to lie in a rock or hang around until we, we got the energy. Now, we weren't human beings back then. But once hot-bloodedness came into being, creatures were able to run around, do all kinds of things, go and hunt at night and do all kinds of things. But that required massive energy. And the brain had to work out an energy conservation method that we didn't waste energy. So it increased the cortex in all animals that learned to dream. So that the cortex could take a second look at an impulse and say, is that really a rabbit that's in the bush there? Or, or, or is that just uh, something that's blowing there? And 
it stopped us acting out every impulse we got because once we had hot bloodedness, we could give in, vent every impulse. But we'd start yeah. to get it, you know, we burned all those calories. So the hot bloodedness and, uh, and, the, and the expectation of dreams came about so the brain could suppress impulses that weren't going to be life-enhancing. Life but then it had to get them out of the brain and then dreaming became the mechanism to get them safely out of the brain. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's a one, you know, we, we, it's fascinating. And you, I mean, I'm not telling you something you don't know, Joe, you know more than I, but the, the capacity that the human beings have within our, within our, within our heads to, you know, heal ourselves. And indeed, how that healing, if you want to call it, or that uh, bringing things to resolution can actually be, um, accelerated using as you say, guided imagery or using indeed formal hypnosis or indeed self-hypnosis. Yes. Oh, and undoubtedly, undoubtedly. It, it is the most powerful tool in our, in our, in our armory. The, the use, the guided use of our own imaginations yeah. to, to redirect our lives away from harmful negative impulses and to mm-hmm. motivate us to do things that will be life enhancing for us. It's yeah. yeah. Yeah, thank you, Joe. Thank you very much for all this very, really, really valuable uh, stuff we're talking about. And I know uh, our listeners and our viewers will find it hugely beneficial and uh, f- benefiting from from your experience and your knowledge and your teaching. W- would you comment, Joe, if you could, on um, the relationship, or if you want to call it, is, is correct, to use a correct term, the comorbidity, we say, of depression and addiction? Well, a client I had yesterday has both got an alcohol addiction and he's on antidepressants. Yeah. And so they're quite often comorbid, they quite often occur simultaneously. And it was clear from my, when I, when I got all the background information from my client yesterday, that this person prior to their addiction had been struggling with negative moods. I mean, since childhood, in fact, I've been struggling yeah. with, negative, with, with, with negative moods. Had did not have great uh, anxiety management skills, well, practically none of them, no, practically zero anxiety management skills. There were problems at home, his father had been an alcoholic, etc. And he had been depressed from a young age. So when he discovered alcohol, it seemed like an answer to a problem. It got him away from all the negative rumination. It got him, it lowered the anxiety and it seemed like a, a miracle drug to him. But very often, as you know, tolerance builds up to you, so you have to take more and more of it. And when he gets married in his young family, his wife doesn't want to see somebody who's out of it, sitting beside, beside yeah. her every night, you know, trying to watch television, and she takes a look at him, and she can see he's out of it. And that's why he ended up my office, because she said, I, I'm not going to put up with this for the next 30 years. Either you get yourself sorted, or this is over. Yeah. And what, one of the things that came as a revelation to him is that when I explained that's to him nice. that addiction like alcohol, the reason why your partner will very often in the end end the relationship is because your relationship has ceased to be with your partner. Your relationship is now with alcohol. It's alcohol that you think about all the time when you're under stress. It's alcohol that you're looking for succor to and solace to. And so you, the alcohol has stolen your relationship. You're no longer emotionally intimate with your partner. Your emotional intimacy is with the addictive habit. And so the partner feels belittled and eventually won't be able to take it. And that was a revelation. She said, nobody ever explained to me that yeah. the alcohol was stealing the intimacy intimacy from my wife it was destroying my relationship for that reason so it's interesting Mm -hmm. so and the the alcoholism go back to your question Aidan uh, both occur for the same reason as an attempt the um, 
the depression is the consequence of not getting needs met and excessive rumination leading to excessive dreaming leading to brain exhaustion mm-hmm. and the alcohol mm-hmm. is an attempt to try and manipulate that so yeah, yeah. we're coming from the same place in a way absolutely and if if i could stretch the envelope joe uh, if i could um you know so many young people nowadays are you know doing suicide would you comment on that and how we could uh you know help or as therapists what we need to do it is so sad it's so sad when a person commits suicide and almost even more sad when it's a young person with a whole life's yeah. attention to them now the reason people com- commit suicide, you can get books that will stretch from one end of my office to the other, all putting forward theories as to why people commit suicide from an army yeah. to all, all kinds of things. But there was ever only one reason. There will ever be yes. only one reason why a person kills themselves. And that reason is they have no hope of a better future. That's the reason. It's not that they want out of this life. It's that they want out of the pain. They have no hope that they can cure. If they could see that there was a possibility in the future getting rid of the emotional distress they're in, they wouldn't kill themselves. It's because they've got no hope of a better future. Mm-hmm. Key life needs not being met for them, and they've got no hope. So the most important job when we're with somebody who's suicidal in that first session is we've got to build hope that recovery is possible. That yeah. the during now is temporary. And that it can't change. That's the most important thing in that first session, because otherwise they may kill themselves before the second session. Yes. We've got, we got to build hope yeah. of recovery. And then we have to take a look at what is it that they're missing? Are they missing key life skills? Are they missing emotional management skills? Are they missing communication skills? What is it? Have they got untreated PTSD? What is it that's stopping them making their life work? We have to work in removing those barriers. But we do need clear thinking. The other little tip I can give you if you're dealing with somebody who's suicidal is don't try and get them to sign a contract that they won't kill themselves because that's just depressing them even more. Yeah. Because at the moment they see their suicide as one solution to their problems and you're taking that away from them. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that's, that's not a good place to go at all. But instead mm-hmm. what you do is you ask them to agree to a postponement. Like, will you mm-hmm. agree to postpone killing yourselves Say, Andrew, we do five sessions together, three sessions together, and then see how you feel. Would you, would you be able to make that degree of a commitment? I'm not asking you, it would be unreasonable of me yeah. to say you'll never do it, but would you be willing to postpone it? And that seems much more accessible to them. Mm. I, I, I was involved with a very well-known uh, UK-Ireland charity, and one of the questions we would have asked uh, people is, do you really want to die, or do you just want the pain to go away? Love it. You know, and um, that, that I think that, and combined with what you were saying, I think it puts in somewhat into perspective. Yes. For them. As a, suicide has been beautifully described as a, a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Yeah. Yeah. And Indeed. That's the problem with suicide, it's permanent, but your problems are temporary. They can be solved. Mm-hmm. You see, mm-hmm. because you get yourself into this emotional state, well, you can only do catastrophic thinking because all your, all your higher intelligence is inhibited by the yeah. high levels of stress you're experiencing. Mm. You are convinced that there's no solution possible. Yeah. You're convinced that your reality can't change. And that's yeah. why if we do relaxation and guided image or hypnosis with them, get their yeah. arousals down, talk to them about the resources that they have, and open up the possibility of change, mm. we very often get them out of that suicide yeah. state. 
Yeah, very powerful statement there, Joe, opening up because, you know, the, as we know, clients who present with, with many issues, they have this foveal vision mm. and they're focused in on one single point, the exclusion of everything else. Yes. And it's, it's, I suppose it's, it's our, it's our job or to help people to, you know, get in touch with that, the parasympathetic, the, 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 that part of the brain that enables us to see things in, in right perspective. Yes, because we relax, we calm down, we release the higher intelligence in the brain to be able to uh, see so much yeah. perspective. Yes. Yeah. Now, um, you may have answered this, Joe, and uh, again, I'm in awe of, not just because you're sitting in front of me here on the screen, but I'm in awe of, of the work that you've done because you, you've revolutionized, in my mind, uh, many areas of working with, with clients. Um, the just to perhaps highlight again, the, your book, what would you say? That, that, what are the common misconceptions about addiction? Again, just to focus in again, if you don't mind, that your book aimed to correct. Well, firstly, that addiction is a biological illness that you're stuck with for the rest of your life. That is a very depressing thought. And yeah. holy. Now, some people, some people benefit from the idea that they've got a disease. And, and, and it helps relieve guilt and it helps the people around him to treat him better. So there's a certain humanity was brought about because people started saying it was a disease. But it also brought about a certain hopelessness. You're stuck with it for the rest of your life. You had to stay yeah. in continual therapy and support groups for the rest of your life. And it's just not true. It's just not true. I'm, I'm just right now, I'm just thinking of a man who came to see me a number of years ago. He was given a life expectancy of two years. He was, he was in his 40s. A life expectancy. He'd been thrown out of every rehab in Ireland. He was heavily using heroin and alcohol. He couldn't leave his house until afternoon because he wouldn't be able to get the shakes under control. He had to get that much alcohol into him. And I, I, I worked with him. And you would think, you know, that, uh, well, this guy has definitely got a biological illness. He's going to be an addict for the rest of his life. He's going to have to be in therapy for the rest of his life. But actually, that guy is still alive 20 years later. He's happily, he's happily married. He chose not to drink again because he felt that was the right thing for him. But he's not in, in, in any support group or A or whatever. He, he developed a whole career, went back, went to university in his 40s, got qualifications, developed a career for himself. Got into, he, he's, he's, his previous marriage had been destroyed by his drug habit. But he got into a new relationship that has you know, survived for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And the guy is happy, a well-functioning member of society. And I feel that he's been so much more empowered by the idea that you can recover from an addiction and take back control over your life rather than feeling that you have to be supportive for the rest of your life mm. outside mm. of your family and your friends. Yeah. So it's self-empowering. It is self-empowering. Yeah. I've got nothing against AA or some things like that. If people benefit from them, I would never dream of interfering with their approach. But if people don't want to go to them, I can say it's perfectly possible to recover. And take back control of your life. And you can do that if you learn the skills that you will need to be sober and to get your life going. You're willing to work with me on this. Yeah. The human given skills, as you, as you mentioned, uh, we mentioned earlier. Yeah. One quote uh, from the book that struck me was You won't pursue a behavior that threatens your health and your life unless you believe it also offers something that you value highly. Yes. Yes, that is that, that is so true. 
I mean, addiction is so destructive. So there has to be some really positive gain. And that's why I don't really hold with therapeutic approaches that say the addiction does nothing for you. It is doing something for you. We, we, if we don't yeah. acknowledge what the person yeah. thinks they're getting out of their addiction, they may not be uh -huh. getting They think, the expectation, the belief, the addiction is doing this for them. If we don't tackle that head on and dismantle it, take it apart, and show that you know it's not really doing what you think it is. In the short term, it can relieve emotional pain and distress loneliness. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. the price of exacerbating those conditions. And yeah. that's what we have to help them to see. Yeah. So we have to not only see that, but also help them create ways. You see, what addiction, where how, the vulnerability to addiction arises because it's tapping into something that's really powerful in our human brain, and that is we have the capacity to get natural highs. Nature never intended us to be on an even, sober, boring keel for 24-7 a day. Nature wanted us to get excited and passionate and delighted and thrilled. Yeah. Yeah. And nature gives us natural highs, especially when we achieve something. When yeah. we do something, achieve something, learn something, we get natural highs. Yeah. And those feelings make life meaningful and worthwhile. It's, it's achievement, stretching, challenging, learning. But addiction hijacks that circle. That circle releases dopamine, which is what addiction hijacks. And the person is now getting highs, at least in the early stages of addiction, artificially from their drug or their gambling or whatever, sex addiction, whatever it is. Over time, of course, the highs get worn out and you're, and you're, ju and you're just trying to control the low feelings. So yet the person believes they're getting something from it. And we have to help them to see that it is an illusion. That is a temporary relief. It's like borrowing money from a loan shark. You can get a very short-term bit of relief, but they're going to be back demanding so much payment and interest off you. It's going to make your life 10 times worse. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And what advice, Joe, would you give to family members or friends who are trying to support someone who is in addiction? Now, isn't that really, really good? Because people so often go about it the wrong way. Yeah. And the first thing we have to recognize is that recovery from addiction is not something the person just wakes up one morning and says, that's it, I'll never drink again, I'm sober, it doesn't happen. Or I'll never smoke again, it doesn't happen. Although people who have recovered love to invent a, a retrospective story whereby they just decided to do it all on their own and they did it, 9 o'clock on the 20th of June, I became a non-smoker. In reality, we know from research that there's a long-term process that the person undergoes before they get control over an addictive habit. And that process, first of all, starts with being in love with the addiction. The person is literally in love. This is fantastic. I can get rid of all my shyness, my, in, my, my inhibitions when I, when, I, when, I, when I snort cocaine or I drink the alcohol. Or the fags really help me to relax and they give me confidence. So at first, the person is in love, pre-contemplation or denial, as we used to say in the old days. Then the person starts over time, starts around, God, there's a bit of a cost here. I'm getting hangovers now, worse than I used to get. And it's starting to cost me more and more money. And, so, uh, and I've been going into work a bit hungover. So the person starts to notice the negative bit. So now there's a weighing scales in their brain, and they're saying, this is the price, this is the pain that addiction caused me, but this is the pleasure. Now, at this stage, relatives and friends are noticing this person's drinking or whatever is out of control, and they think they want to put pressure on to stop controlling it. But in a way, that's only adding, that's, that's, that's uh, puts them back into denial, because... 
they know that they're getting pleasure out of it and it's helping them cope with life. And it's going to make them feel resistant, resistant. And you don't want them to be resistant. You want them to be able to look objectively at what they're doing. So you could, at this stage, ask meaningful questions so that they're non-threatening and ask them, are you happy with what's happening? Do you, how, how do you feel after it? Do you have any concerns about the money? Is this causing any problems for your work? You can ask questions, but no advice. And above all, no criticism if you want to help them. You want mm -hmm. to help the process along so they start to review their behavior. And at a certain point in time, they will say to themselves, the pain is worse than the gain. It's not worth it anymore, this drinking. Yeah. I, I'm sick of smoking. That's the truth. I'm sick of smoking. Yeah. Yeah. So now they move into what's called the determination phase. They are now getting determined or psyching themselves up to really do something about it. At that stage, we can ask them, you know, what plan do you have? How, how might you go about it? And then the next stage is they, they actually do something. They take action. They quit smoking on that Monday morning. They go to rehab. They go to see a hypnotherapist. They do something. And they, and they take action. And as a result of that action, they've either cut down or they've cut out the addictive habit. So that means they moved into maintenance. And that's the really tricky phase. But there's something really powerful to know here. And that is that most addicts, I'm using inverted commas for that, most addicts, on a first attempt, maybe even a second or a third attempt at getting on top of an addiction, are going to relapse. Relapse is part of the journey of recovery. So when you have somebody in front of you saying, I've got no willpower, I've tried to quit smoking five times, I've always gone back. And you say, oh, hang on, hang on. Tell me yeah. how long, tell me about it. How long, you know, why did you stop? How long just, oh, I stayed off of one for two weeks. Wow, that is fantastic. That is a great achievement. People who succeed ultimately have had a number of attempts. And the ones who succeed learn from the attempts. Why did I go back? I went into a, I went into a high-risk situation and I had no plan. Why did I go back? I was under pressure of work and I didn't have any other coping skills, so I went back. So you learn to build into your recovery plan strategies for dealing with those high-risk situations in the future. So we do not argue. You make a, if you argue with somebody who's not, you're going to make them worse. You're going to make them more defensive. But we can ask questions helping them to explore where are they at. We can, if, they, if they've moved where they say, I'm sick of this, I really, I really want to quit. We can explore, well, how do you think you might go about it? Do you think you might need professional help? And, and maybe help them create some options here to get some professional help. That's an avenue they're willing to explore. But it has to be done supportably and not aggressively and not attacking them because you'll only make the addiction worse. Excellent. And <clears throat> excellent. Just to sort of um, lighten it up a bit, can you tell us a story, Joe, if you don't mind, of the lady with the toothache? <laughs> yes, I do remember this lady really, really, really well. She came to see me. I'd done the routine with her to help her give up smoking. Yeah. I was taking it back. And she rang me the next day. And she said, Joe, she said, I am desperate for a cigarette. She said, I am so desperate for a cigarette. I am ready to murder my children. I am ready to kill my children, Joe. So what should I do? Yeah. Oh. Answer a couple of questions for me. And she said, yes, yes, get on with it, yes. I said, have you ever had a bad toothache? She said, yes. Now remember what the pain of a bad toothache. Can you remember? She said, yes. Now tell me honestly, which is worse? The bad toothache or your desire for a cigarette? She said, oh, the bad toothache. I said, okay, let me ask you another question. Have you ever had a mild, nagging toothache that wouldn't go away? She said, yes. Can you? I want you just to remember a time when you had that. How frustrating it was and how it upset you. Now tell me honestly, which is worse? That mild nagging won't go away toothache. 
bigger desire for it back. So what I suppose that my acting true take is worse. Now answer me one more question. When you get the desire for a fact, how long does it last? With that, her voice perked up a little bit and she said, Oh, I'm not telling you a word of a life. It's not standing up to five minutes. I said, okay, let me get this right now. You are ready to murder your children for a piece of discomfort that's milder than a mild toothache and it's going to be gone in a few minutes. At which point she just burst out laughing. (laughs) And what had happened inside her brain was she had released the big dopamine release, fantasizing about the cigarette, which created a craving in her. She couldn't cope with it. But once I calmed her down, took her mind away from the craving, because that's going to go in a minute or so, that it more objectively. She could see that she was being fooled. Been yeah, excellent. That's a wonderful demonstration of how we can, you know, dissipate uh, the, the the anxiety or whatever uh, that's causing the, the, the stress at the moment. And in, in conclusion, Joe, um, if there was something finally you would just like to impart to our audience um, who are listening, what what would you say finally to people listening and watching? I would, I would say, I, I think that most of your viewers are going to be hypnotherapists. Am I right in assuming that? Yes, yes. I would say that hypnotherapy is potentially one of the most effective and most powerful tools in existence for helping people with distress. But it is imperative that we learn to use it with the right psychological understandings and not get captured into out-of-date understandings, which could actually yeah. exacerbate problems. Absolutely. Yeah. Excellent. Well, that's, I mean, I, I can't uh, make that any better than, or say it any, express it better than you've done, Joey. It was eminently expressed and very well expressed. And thank you so much for always your generosity in talking to me and giving of your valuable time. And I urge anyone out there, therapists, non-therapists, to go and buy your books because they, they are, uh, they do speak uh, practical uh, truth and knowledge and stuff that it can be implemented and actioned uh, in a very short period of time. Joe Griffin, eminent psychologist, thank you so much for your time. Take care. Thank you, Aidan. Bye-bye for now. Bye now. So there you have it. You've heard from the master himself, Joe Griffin. As I say, one of Ireland's foremost eminent psychologists in terms of the research that this gentleman has produced and his works. Why not stay tuned to the European Association of Professional Hypnotherapists podcast as we have many other episodes in our library and in those episodes to come. So stay tuned, as I say, and you can also visit eaph.ie. It's the website where you will get vital information where you can check out the registered and accredited hypnotherapists available to you in Ireland. I have been your host, Aidan Noon, and bye-bye for now. Until next time.